and welcome to another class in the the bunker uh, we're rolling into the the Christmas season now and uh, after today we have one more class that we will do next week uh, that will get us to uh, the middle of December we will then take a uh, Christmas holiday uh, and then we will get back together in January so we're getting ready to finish with a roaring uh, ending right here at the end. We need a cliffhanger, right? Uh, because we've actually been, for those of you who don't know, uh, we've actually been doing this class since last January um, and rolled into it. And then we've been, we've been doing this all through the summer. So uh, we're going to take a break. And, uh, and anyway, so today and next week, good lead up in, into that uh, Christmas holiday. So... As we get to that, let me start with a, uh, oh, and by the way, and always, please hop in and just tell us where you're coming from. It's always nice to see where everybody's in. So as you're watching this, just say, hey, watching from wherever, uh, and we'd appreciate it. Thanks. All right, that's it. Here's a question that I've often asked myself, and, and uh, other people uh, sometimes sitting in my office have had the same question, and that is, if I sin... And then I repent, but then I repeat the sin again. Did I really repent the last time, or did I not do it right? Uh, and there's even a suggestion in the Doctrine and Covenants that maybe the former sins return. So have I really repented? Did I really do what I needed to be able to do? And, and basically, what's the deal? Well, I came across something this week that gave me some, uh, gave me some greater clarification, I think. And got me thinking and got and, and sent me doing uh, some research and here's basically uh, what I came with came up with that I think maybe sort of answers maybe this eternal question just a little bit and it, this was new information to me as I as I worked my way through it okay let's go uh, let's go to the book of Enos and and this is as one author put it kind of the itty bitty books in the Book of Mormon that give us some information and and listen to what, one of the things that Enos is going to say here. And again, this is a well-known story to us. And I will tell you of the wrestle. We're going to talk about wrestling in a minute. The wrestle which I had before God, before I received a remission of my sins. Then he's going to say, And my soul hungered, and I knelt before my Maker, and I cried to Him in mighty supplication for mine own soul. And then he's going to say, And there came a voice unto me, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. Now, for all of my life, I have believed that the words remission and forgiveness were basically the same, and, and they were really interchangeable. But the more I've looked at that, I think there's a real possibility that they are, they are related, but not necessarily interchangeable. And, and, and let me tell you where I think the difference may lie on this, and I think this is what opens up some of the fun possibilities here when we try and answer uh, this very difficult question. One of the things that I did is that I went to uh, the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, which is always helpful when you're looking at uh, word usage in the Book of Mormon. We really think that so much of the Book of Mormon came through Joseph Smith's mind, 
and, and certainly the Book of Mormon was going to be intended, first of all, for those in the first generation of the church for whom this was going to be their first understanding of anything gospel-related. So it had to be word usage that they would understand. So sometimes uh, the, the 1828 Webster's Dictionary gives us some wonderful word background in helping define the, the words that uh, we're looking at. So he, part of what I found then when I looked at the word forgiveness, the word, the, the word in, in, in that early 1800s meant a pardon. It's an event. You have been forgiven of something. You have been pardoned of something. It was there, and now it's not. It has been forgiven, and and that may and when we put it in that kind of an event context, it's gone. So when we talk about the the idea of forgiveness, we're talking about something that we've tended to understand fairly well with the Lord is that he is he was quick to forgive. He told his disciples to forgive 70 times 7, which was really an aphorism for forgive constantly all the time because I think he was also saying, and I forgive you 70 times 7 of the same sin, I forgive you. Because that's just the nature of, of what we do and, and how we do it. Uh, and... And tacked on to that was that wonderful reassurance that says, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. They're gone. It has been pardoned. Uh, it's off the books. It's now completely not there anymore. So when we look at the word uh, forgiveness, um, we have actually been forgiven of the action, the, the, uh, the crime, if you will, has been removed from us. Um, and so we, we see that in terms of forgiveness. But now take a look at the word remission. Remission means uh, a lessening of intensity, a process. In, in our com common parlance, one of the things we talk about for instance, is struggling with uh, cancer. Someone is diagnosed with cancer. And what happens, it gets treated and then what happens? It goes into remission. It's sort of there in the background, but we don't know if it will come back or not. We hope it won't come back. We'll go back every six months, uh, and our doctor will tell us whether it has been, it's still in remission or whether it's become active again, but it's still sort of there, even though it's not affecting us, it's not getting in our way. Now, what that means then is that there's this process of a sin being remitted or it's in remission. So it's a gradual transformation of a desire. Now maybe one of the best ways to, to explain this also would be take the idea of someone who struggles with something like shoplifting. And they, may, they have been maybe shoplifting a lot. Well, what happens is, is that maybe they get caught shoplifting, go before a judge, they're truly contrite, um, and the judge issues them a pardon, meaning pardoning the fact that it's not going to show up on your record. It is clean. We as a court, we as a government, remember that sin no more. It's gone. 
But for somebody who has a habitual desire uh, and maybe a covetousness to see things that they want and and they and they repeat that shoplifting charge that urge is still there when they walk into a store uh, the sin has been pardoned but it's and it may be in remission but it may express itself again uh, similar to someone who may be an alcoholic who has stopped drinking forgiveness but still has the cravings to, to uh, drink meaning that it may be in remission until it flares up again and now now the act has been committed so in some ways it's the difference between uh, an act and a process and we start to recognize that that idea of a remission of sins is a process that happens over time think about uh, the prophet Nephi uh, who's going to talk about in his psalm of Nephi in 2nd Nephi 4 he doesn't say, help me not to sin anymore. What he's going to say is, help me to even shake at the very appearance of evil. Remove the desire from me. And I think when we talk about the removing and transforming of a desire, now we have fully talked about sins that have been completely remitted and transformed and changed and that is a gradual ongoing process that we will have to battle uh, the rest of our life and and so what we see in something like that is that the effects and consequences of sin require not just the cessation of, of, do, of what we do but it requires the ultimate power uh, enabling power of the atonement that'll only come as we wrestle with it and that and while we're in the process of that during all of our mortal life that that means that we're going to be in and out of remission of sins and and that we probably meant there are some sins that maybe we do once and we never do again but let's face it, there are some battles that we fight that, that we are in and out of remission all the time. Think about if there's a certain amount of weight you want to lose. Uh, I've, had, I've had weight that I've been trying to lose since this last summer. And I seem to be in and out of remission a lot. I, I lose it and then I gain it and then I lose it and then I gain it and then I'm really good and then Thanksgiving comes along and then I'm back in remission again uh, and then I'm forgiven, I lose it and now here comes the holidays and the question is whether I'll get to the Christmas holidays and, and be forgiven or be in remission. Probably forgiven and then fall into remission again. Uh, and so some battles we fight over and over and that is what we're going to talk about that remission process becomes very, very much a wrestling act that we, in wrestling with God, have to fight this battle over and over and over. Okay? Now, King Benjamin understood this really well because King Benjamin was going to tell us, again, believe that you must repent of your sins and forsake them 
and you say, yeah, I tried, and humble yourselves before God, that's part of it, and ask him in sincerity of heart that he would forgive you. Lord, please have mercy on me and forget what I did. Don't hold it against me in the long run. I have come to the sacrament. I have a broken heart. I have a contrite spirit. I, I feel the return of the spirit. I feel as if I've been forgiven, that that, that stain is on me no longer. I've been forgiven. But then he says, but if you do the things that I'm going to tell you to do, and remember for King Benjamin that was loving and taking care of the poor and giving of your substance and all of those kind of things. He says, if you do these things, you shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God. You see this filling up process. And we're going to, we're going to talk next week about an emptying out and a filling and, and what, that, what that looks like. Be filled with the love of God and always do what then? retain a remission of your sins. You were forgiven. Now I'm going to teach you as you are transformed by the, the gift of the Spirit and you become a new creature in Christ. I'm going to show you and teach you how to have a remission of your sins permanently. Because when that happens, now you get to join Zion. When you have a permanent remission and a change of desire and a change of everything that's going to be the moment at which you are now going to be comfortable living with me in the eternities I was asking some clients this week who were struggling with themselves and with their families and worried about those that were really struggling and we had to go back through the process of saying well hold on who's going to be in the celestial kingdom and they had to think about it, and then we tried to go through all the obedience things, and uh, I had to remind them of uh, Elder Oaks, President Oaks' comments where he says, the celestial kingdom is not about what we do. Our salvation, our exaltation will be about what we have become, how we have been permanently changed and transformed by Christ. That's what happened on the cross, was the opening up of that possibility of being transformed permanently so that we can have a permanent remission of sins and we can be like Nephi and not just say, help me not to sin. He's going to say, help me to shake at the very appearance of sin. It is so abhorrent to me that it would never even be a possibility to me. I'm just not going to do that at all. I'm not going there. Okay, That's the remission of sins. But for Nephi, as it is for all of us, that process involves wrestling. It involves wrestling, and that's, that's the battle. So when we talk about wrestling, exactly what, what are we talking about when we talk about wrestling? Well, wrestling, and here is, here is Jacob wrestling with the angel at, at uh, Peniel. Now, our ability to grow and to change, just like Enos, lies in our willingness to wrestle with God, to wrestle with heaven, to wrestle with deity. We may say, well, exactly how, how does that work? Well, first of all, we're going to wrestle with our sins. And we're going to wrestle not just with our actions, 
for which we need forgiveness, but we're also going to wrestle with our desires for which we need remission. So we're going to wrestle with sin, but in order to do that, to make the necessary changes in our life with sin, for so many of us, I, I, would, I would dare say all of us, we have to wrestle with our own faith. Do we really believe that God can do what he said he could do? Is he going to not just remove it, but change me? And that's really hard when we watch ourselves struggling or we watch family members struggling. We watch our lives um, as we have had things that we really believed. And then, they, and then they get questioned. And so then we battle our own doubts. We look at our patriarchal blessings full of promises and covenants. And then we see how our life lays out and it may not look the same. There may be challenges we didn't know we would have. And we're struggling with that. And when we do that and when, like when we watch our family struggle, we start to have our own doubts about the, what has God promised us. Because again, we look and say, I've tried to be as... I've tried to be obedient and I've tried to do these things and I've done what the prophets have asked me to do and my kids are falling away. Uh, or we're doing all of these things and it just seems like we run into one painful event after another and I'm trying desperately to believe. But I just can't believe that a loving God would allow this to happen or allow this to happen to me. Uh, or uh, I got an answer to prayer to move here, marry him, take this job. Uh, I got a, an answer of prayer that we were supposed to, and then it blew up in our face. And we're having a horrible experience doing what I thought God told us to do. And I'm not supposed to be mad at God, but I'm really mad at God. I'm not supposed to doubt him. I have a strong testimony of the gospel. I think I've got a testimony of the guy. I know that God is there. I think that God is there. I'm not sure that God is there. I thought I know how God operated. I was pretty sure I knew how God operated. Well, I'm not sure how God operates. <laughs> we, we begin a wrestle with our thoughts, with our beliefs, with our desires. I think that's when we begin to wrestle with God. And he intended it to be so. Because I think when, when everything is said and done, we wrestle with the, the ability to actually surrender ourselves to somebody that we can't see. We have to surrender ourselves to somebody that we don't always know why, they, why he does what he does. We have to surrender ourselves to somebody that we don't understand how he's dealt with others, both in the scriptures and in our own life. As we've talked many times before, think about how many people you know who say, I could never believe in a God who would fill in the blank. My idea of God, my God, the God that I worship in my image would never do that and either I have to give up my image or I have to 
give up God because I don't think that's fair or I don't think that's right or I don't think that that's what prophets should do and if this prophet is listening to that God then I'm not sure about that prophet and I'm not sure necessarily about that God and then we wrestle and we wrestle with our hopes and our thoughts and our worries and all of that kind of comes together uh, into kind of a mix and I think that's, I think it's a battle that that uh, if we haven't faced it, I don't think we've necessarily really reached way down inside of us to really ask ourselves what we believe. If we haven't wrestled, I believe we may be a little bit in danger of somebody coming along and finally poking a stick in a place that we hadn't prepared ourselves for that shakes us up. Or we're in pretty good shape and we love the gospel and then we read something online about something in the church history and it shakes us up because we never went there in any of our belief and doubts and thoughts up to this moment. And then suddenly we do. And then there's great anxiety when suddenly we are worried about and stressing about and struggling with an area that we never knew that we would struggle with. And then we wrestle. So I guess I'm here today uh, partly pleading for our wrestling. I think we all need to have those moments of wrestling because that's when real growth and I believe real testimony really takes firm root as we wrestle and we struggle with where we are. Okay, now, so a problem when we start talking about wrestling, if we're going to liken the scriptures to ourself, we are then put in a position of having to compare our struggles with the lives and examples of those we find in the scriptures. Because, let's face it, if you're going to say, okay, I have a struggle with doubt and with God and stuff like that, well, maybe I'll find some solace in the scriptures. And, and we're told, like in the scriptures, unto ourselves. And so we do that. We go into the scriptures and we start running into examples of uh, men and women who did extraordinary things. And it doesn't necessarily match. It doesn't necessarily give us the answers that we're looking for because we're not sure we can relate. Can we really relate to who they were and what they did? And brothers and sisters, I think that that's especially true as we were talking about last time. When, for instance, we use the Old Testament as a buffet. And if I need a, a good story on sacrifice, let me reach into the life of Abraham, pull out that story of sacrifice, talk about it, uh, have a discussion about it, carefully put it back and go on our way. And if we don't see Abraham's full story then we don't necessarily, we have a hard time matching our life and our, the loss of our job and our struggle and our doubts with a man standing on top of Mount Moriah with a knife in his hand and his son uh, bound before him, ready to take the life of his heir to the posterity that God promised him. 
that just doesn't seem to match my faith crisis, my history crisis, my life crisis. And then we just say, I'm trying to read the scriptures and it's not working. So, to do that, if we're going to liken, we must see these men and women totally in context, not just a quick moral story. And I believe a good example of doubt and struggle and wrestling is actually Abraham, the one that we that we place up on that pedestal of the one that seems to have had the greatest sacrifice and that that seems to have the greatest faith. Father Abraham, who seemed to always do the right things. And again, if we're not seeing him necessarily in context, we will miss the, the wonderful example that he is for us as we, as we do this. Uh, so, I want you to uh, hop over for just a minute uh, over here to uh, uh, the book of Genesis 15. <clears throat> and, and as you do so, if you're going to follow along uh, in the King James Version, this might be just a little bit different than, than what you are uh, actually seeing. Now, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a little bit, uh, it's a... It's a uh, Translation that I particularly like from uh, Robert Alter, uh, who did a wonderful job, I think, of translating the Old Testament. He's a Jewish scholar, uh, just did a super job. And so, so this could be his translation that I think is, is really particularly clarifying. Okay? And he's going to say, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And this is right after he's had... He's, he's uh, had this conversation with Melchizedek uh, and they've defeated the kings uh, at so of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, so, and, and he's had initial promises from the Lord about what the Lord intends for him, those Abrahamic promises. Okay, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. I love that idea with the Lord as a shield. doesn't mean that there aren't things that we need to be shielded against, but he says, I am, I am your shield. I love that. Okay? Your reward shall be very great. Well, if you're Abram and you've heard that from the Lord, that should be comforting. But listen to Abram's response. And Abram said, Oh, my master, Lord, what can you give me when I'm going to my end childless. Lord, thank you for those kind words. I'm glad you're my shield. I don't know if you've noticed I'm now in my 90s. And my wife has dried up. You know, she is in her 90s. We're old. And you promised us years ago that we would have kids, and that just hasn't happened. So now these fears and doubts start to come rising up in me. I'm going to go to my end childless. He's going to say, and actually my heir is going to be this, this Canaanite guy uh, who couldn't really care less. Okay? And, and watch what God does with him. 
he, he takes him outside and says, I, think, I, I love this. Okay, Abram, go outside. It's dark. It's night. Go up. Look at the sky. Okay. Look up in the heavens and count the stars if you can count them. I see them, Lord. There's a lot of stars there. And the Lord says, so shall be your seed. You will have as many uh, seed as there are stars. I'm afraid I'm going to be childless. Okay? And God said to him, I am the Lord that brought you out of the Ur of Chaldees and to brought you to this land to inherit. And by the way, remember you get the land and he's going to say, I'm a Bedouin. <laughs> I'm still in a tent. And I'm childless. And then he's going to and then he's going to say, "Oh, oh my master lord, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? I'm still struggling. You've made these promises to be quite honest. I love you, but I haven't seen it. I'm still having to go on faith. And now I'm pretty sure I'm going to die childless. I I think we're past the time of having kids. I'm I'm kind of given up here." Now, I don't know how many of us feel that same way, at which, at which point we start to feel hopeless and helpless. I heard nice promises growing up or my patriarchal blessing. I'm kind of throwing in the towel. I'm not really sure anymore it's going to happen. Now, the Lord does an interesting thing then. He has this doubting prophet who has become discouraged because it doesn't look like these things are actually going to occur. What he does here is the Lord then covenants using a familiar Canaanite ritual. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because to our eyes and understanding it's a pretty um, unfamiliar, kind of a bizarre ritual. Take three cattle, cut them in half and put them a little ways from each other. Take three goats, cut them in half, put them over here. Take three birds, put them over here. So great, so now we have these half animals over here. Uh, and to us that looks like, what is he doing? ancient Canaanite ritual, this is how they made covenants, is they would separate these animals and then they would walk through it, basically saying, I'm going to hold myself to that, to this covenant. And like these two parts here, if one of us should not keep our covenant, may we be divided asunder. May, may we be cut in half because we have failed to keep our end of the covenant. The Lord is going to speak in language that Abraham would understand and says, create this covenant. And then what happens is at night, the Lord as a, as a lamp, as a lamp, Abraham is going to watch him walk in between these separated animals. And to Abraham, that means everything. That means God is making a covenant with me to fulfill all of his promises. And he used language that, that this uh, Bedouin prophet 
would clearly understand that God is binding himself to a promise. And, was a little, and, and then what happens? As the sun was about to set, a deep slumber fell upon Abram, and now a great dread came falling upon him. This is the, the dark night of the soul. This, this slumber is one that if, you, if we look into the scriptures, we'll find the slumber night. Um, and because whether with sin or doubt, growth in the morning comes only after a painful wrestle, off, very often, in the night. Think about Alma and his three days and three nights with a racked soul. Think about Paul and his dark wrestle at night with himself and his sins. Uh, think about Joseph Smith just before the vision comes and he has his dark, his wrestle with darkness. There's a common theme here. Jacob at, at uh, Peniel is going to have the same kind of dark wrestle. There is a dark wrestling and you've had it and I've had it at 3 o'clock in the morning when we're wrestling with what do we believe? Do we believe? We're struggling to understand and we're up at night because we can't quite put the pieces together. Does it really exist? Is the promises really there? Will, is there an end for me? Is there a marriage for me? Is there, will we get a job again? How do we survive after the loss of a family member? We have the dark nights of the soul um, and th those painful wrestles in the night and then we hope that there will be light in the morning and Abraham had that after these promises are made he went into a dark wrestle what was his wrestle about well remember a lot of what he was wanting to know is am I going to have kids okay well as it turns out after that dark slumber falls on Abram, here, here's what he gets. And the Lord says to Abram, Know well that your seed, remember like the stars in the heaven, you're going to have a lot, great, shall be strangers in a land that's not theirs, and they shall be enslaved and afflicted for 400 years. Part of his pain and sorrow was the fact that he would finally have kids, yay, but that the, the, the children of Israel would be in Egypt for 400 years and go through the pain of slavery until they finally come out on the other side with more. But for him, there was that dark dread of Here's this mix of finally having posterity and they're going to be subjected to this. I think it's a little bit like Enoch getting a chance to see his posterity. Yay, I'm going to have posterity and oh my gosh, look at the flood and everything that would happen with that. We have kids and they bring us joy and they bring us sorrow. And, and when we have joy, we celebrate and we bear our testimony and fast and testimony meeting, how grateful we are. And at three o'clock in the morning, we have our dark night of the soul when they struggle 
as has so many others. And then that, that ultimate comfort for him, and as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. That through all the struggles that you're having, there will be a time when you finally pass away and have to be buried, by the way, in a borrowed plot of land because you won't have your own. You'll be at peace. Now, if you are one of those that is is struggling, can we put ourselves kind of in, in good stead? Uh, because if you're struggling, even as, even as you're watching this, maybe even in this week or this holiday season or this season of COVID and you're worried or you're struggling and you're up at night wrestling with your own sins that may have been forgiven but maybe not necessarily the habits or the desires haven't yet been remitted. Or maybe because of your, your faith is waning in the face of pain and adversity and you're struggling for hope. And now you're not sure like you once were. And then you worry that you're supposed to have a strong testimony and people with strong testimonies aren't supposed to be struggling as you're struggling. That's just not how it's supposed to work. Okay, You're in good company. If you're wrestling and having to reach deep into what it is that you really, really believe. Well... The goal ultimately is to not despair too much when that night of wrestling comes. Again, if we're going to look into the scriptures, I think we're in good company. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Jesus' words from the cross. Father, where did you go? I I always told my apostles that you may leave me but my god will my father will never leave me father where'd you go and we get that sense of uh, the greek word is actually of betrayal of loss of despair that he is suddenly on the cross in pain but alone because his father has left him that's pretty deep anguish I was willing to do the atonement, but when the full power and pain is falling upon me, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way to do it, I would like to find another way that maybe isn't quite so painful and and soul-searing to have to experience the dark thoughts and the dark deeds of so many evil people that have lived and I'm having to bear it and feel it. Uh, If there's any way to let this cup pass, please let it pass from me. From from the darkness of of a prison basement, Oh God, where art thou? Where did you go? My people are scattered across Missouri. We're sick. And suffering, O God, where art thou? Where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? 
And did you go there voluntarily? Is there something that I did to cause you to go? Oh God, where art thou? And even Enos. I feel forgiven. How's it done? I don't understand. I don't understand how all this works. Elijah coming from the glory on, on the top of the mountain calling down fire. Great victory over the priests of Baal to come down the mountain and find that nobody was converted who's going to sit under the juniper tree and say I'm no better than my fathers I am no better than my fathers <sighs> let me die now and you see that dark night of despair under the juniper tree as he struggles brothers and sisters I believe that the Lord intends to show us the light but it's going to come after the dark night of the soul. That it's in that dark night of the soul that we reach deeply into our hearts and struggle and so that as, as Eve said, we will know to prize the sweet because we have tasted the bitter. May the Lord bless you in helping to find remittance and remission of your sins, meaning the transformation over time of our hearts. And in that same process, may we also be able to find uh, light after our uh, nights of darkness of doubt and struggle and then be blessed on the other end and know that he is still there. I bear you my testimony that he tends to be our shield and to be there for us if we will let him be there. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.